The Press Box is here to catch you up on the latest media stories. Hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, these guys have the insight on the biggest stories you care about. Check out The Press Box on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hello, and welcome back to Plain English. Uh, Today's guest is New York Times tech columnist Kevin Roos. He is here to tell us why tech's most famous founders are acting so bizarrely these days and why I am wrong about remote work. But first, Kevin and I have a great long conversation about Time Magazine's Person of the Year, Elon Musk. Elon Musk is a lot. Uh, And I thought that there's really no good way to introduce all of his accomplishments outside of a bio. So I thought that we would begin this podcast with a reminder of where Elon Musk came from and what he's achieving right now. Elon Musk was born in South Africa in 1971. He moved to the U.S. to finish college and in the mid-1990s moved to Silicon Valley. He has a brief stint at a PhD program at Stanford. He drops out. And he pretty much immediately starts building things. In 1995, he founds Zip2, which is sort of a digital map, yellow pages for newspaper publishers. Four years later, 1999, it is acquired by Compaq. Shout out Compaq, RIP, made my first desktop computer. And Musk nets $22 million in the sale. Now it's 1999. We are near the top of the first dot-com bubble. And Musk founds X.com, a kind of early digital bank and payments company. You can think of it like an early PayPal. In fact, you should think of it as an early PayPal because X.com was acquired by a company that eventually became PayPal. So now it's 2001, and Musk is a millionaire through his work on Zip2, X.com, PayPal, but he's about to pivot into hardware. He becomes involved with the Mars Society, which is a loose group of people interested in going to Mars to look around, do some science, eventually create some settlements. He becomes convinced that the best way to get to Mars is to build cheaper, more effective, more reusable rockets. In 2002, he founds Space Explorations Technology Corp, aka SpaceX. Over the last 20 years, SpaceX has basically lapped NASA, the entire US government, and arguably the rest of the world in building the most advanced rocket technology company on the planet. Two years after he found SpaceX, Musk joins the board of directors at a car startup called Tesla. After the financial crisis of 2007-2008, he assumes leadership of the company and installs himself as CEO. Uh, Tesla releases a series of extremely popular electric vehicles that push the entire car industry to accelerate their plans to build electric. And 13 years later, Tesla is the most viable car company in the world. So I don't have time to tell you about everything else that Musk is working on, but in addition to going to space and electrifying vehicles, his companies build solar panels and rechargeable lithium-ion batteries. His boring company, that is boring as a synonym for digging, not boring as in not exciting, builds giant tunnels for the expansion of a technology called the Hyperloop, a sort of futuristic, super-fast subway system. 
He has co-founded OpenAI, which is doing some of the most fascinating work in artificial intelligence. He co-founded Neuralink, a sort of still evolving technology that could one day supercharge our brain power by hooking us up to a computer, if you are into that sort of thing. So it's important here, I think, to be uh, uh, very clear about a point. Some of this stuff is very real, and some of it is not very real. If you buy a Tesla, that is a real car that works. If you wish to ride around in a Hyperloop with a Neuralink strapped to your head, you're going to have to wait a long time. There's another important distinction to make for Musk and his portfolio of achievements, not just real versus unreal, but achievements versus behavior. I don't know Elon Musk. I have never met him. I've never interviewed him. But I've read his tweets and I've read reports about his management style. And it's a lot. He mocks and needles liberal senators online. He is reportedly a very difficult boss. The working conditions at his companies are the subject of routine negative exposés. He is infamous for hyping his company's performance before the numbers match the hype. He doesn't stand up to China. I could go on. But the thing is that an early theme of this podcast is everything is not purely good or bad. In fact, almost everything is neither. Elon Musk is so many different things that he is motivated by this outsized ambition to bring humanity to the stars and settle on other planets. That's his goal. My question for this episode is a bit humbler. What has Elon Musk really done for the planet we're already on? I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Kevin Roos, first guest on the podcast, first return guest on the podcast. Hey, dude, welcome back. Thank you. I must have done something right because uh, I got invited back. So this is very exciting. I'm so excited to have you back. Um, okay, let's talk Elon Musk. Elon Musk is Time Magazine's person of the year. Elon Musk is the Financial Times person of the year. He is the richest person in the world. He is the CEO of the world's most valuable car company, the CEO of the world's most advanced rocket company. And he enjoys an illustrious side career as an online shitposter. For example, once tweeting at the senior senator from Oregon, Ron Wyden, that his Twitter <laughs> photo resembled, and I'm paraphrasing here delicately, a man near orgasm. Kevin, where should our analysis of this high-variance individual begin? Uh, first of all, I technicality, but I think his tweet to Senator Wyden actually said that he looked like someone who had just had an orgasm. Um, it's, it's, Fact <laughs> checks are so important on yeah, plain just, English. Just Thank you be very, very much, Kevin. Journalistic accuracy here. Okay, so, <laughs> so um, I, I mean, so you, you told me that we would be talking about Elon Musk today, and I went back and I tried to figure out, like, I think I've basically never written about Elon Musk, which is tremendously weird. Um, and I don't know why, except that I'm not really like a car guy, and I also don't, you know, cover uh, things like spaceships all that often. Um, but I think it seems obviously true to me that Elon Musk is the, you know, one of the most important people. The living people on Earth today, um, you know, just the wealth alone, but then also, you know, the many different projects, the space exploration, the you know, the the popularization of electric vehicles. Like, it seems very obvious to me that people a hundred years from now will be will will know who Elon Musk is um, in a way that I don't think could be said of like a lot of other CEOs that are you know, running big companies now. So I think in that sense, like, you know, Elon Musk is is a is a, you know, sort of obvious pick for something like this. I will say, like, I I there are a lot of things about Elon Musk that I don't like. Like I think, you know, personally, like I find his whole internet persona very strange. Like this cult of personality that follows him everywhere is like very strange. I, I don't like how he goes after journalists or, you know, how he like, you know, puts self-driving features in Teslas before they're road ready and like puts people in danger. Like I think there are a lot of 
nits that one could pick with Elon Musk. Uh, but at the same time, like my other thought about Elon Musk is that I think from a utilitarian perspective, it's probably good that he is not like, you know, uh, more sort of sympathetic uh, character. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that, because I think it's something that I've come to in the last couple of years, which is like, I, I, I remember when electric cars first came out, they were like, you know, I was living in the Bay Area, I was living in Berkeley, actually, and like they were a big signal of partisan affiliation. Like everyone driving electric cars, you could assume that they were a progressive, that they were environmentalist, that this was like an issue that was very salient to them. And Birkenstock wearing, Patagonia shopping, Ben and Jerry's eating, lib. Totally, yes, totally. That's on. what having a Prius meant um, in the early days of Priuses. And I think Elon Musk almost single-handedly like changed the coding, the cultural coding on electric vehicles, such that like now, like a lot of Republicans are driving them. And like the Ford electric F-150 like can't keep up with demand. Like they can't make enough of these like electric pickup trucks that, you know, people want to buy so many of them. And so I think like if you know, the Tesla, the guy who had come out with the Tesla had been like a, you know, Berkeley environmental studies professor with a ponytail. <laughs> like, I just, I don't think they would have the kind of mass adoption that they have. And so I think there's an argument to be made that in the grand scheme of things, if you think that the electrification of vehicles is like going to be part of the recipe for dealing with climate change, it's probably good to have someone at, you know, being a figurehead for the movement who is not like a, you know, token progressive. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. We are in a race against old, dirty technology. Emissions from cars account for 30% of America's carbon footprint. So anything that we can do to move away from gas-powered cars is a mitzvah for the world. And for all the mean tweets, and they are mean, you're not going to convince me that any one individual has been more of a cultural accelerant for electric vehicles than Elon Musk. I mean, the math could not be more straightforward. Out of every three electric vehicles purchased in the U.S., two are Teslas, two of three. The top two electric vehicles by popularity, they're both Teslas. So the company right now is losing market share because so many other companies are building electric vehicles. And that's not a great thing necessarily for Tesla's stock, but for Musk's influence, it's the greatest possible sign you could hope for. It's a sign that everyone else is taking a signal from Tesla to make electric cars. If you want to know, in a weird way, how influential Musk is, don't even look at Tesla. Look at everything around it. Ford can't sell its electric pickups fast enough, as you said. Lexus says they're going to be 100% electric by 2030. Toyota is all in on electric vehicles. It's like there's a huge cannonball that just dropped in the water, but don't look at the cannonball. Look at the ripples. It's the ripple effects of Musk's cultural acceleration in EVs that really, really matters here. Totally. And I have a question for you, because this is something I wonder about a lot, which is like, is Elon Musk's achievement sort of tied in some way to his personality. That is, like, if you could snip out the part of his personality that, like, posts, you know, stolen memes from Reddit and, like, insults senators and, you know, just shit posts, as you said. Like, if you could just, like, excise that part and, like, put in a totally boring, like, competent engineer and CEO in his position, like, would he be where he is? Would Tesla be where it is? Or do you think that is somehow integral to the whole project? Um... I don't want to be in the position of suggesting that successful people have to be dicks. Like, because they don't. I know lots of extremely successful people that are really nice, and they're not assholes. And I definitely don't want to suggest that, like, Elon Musk could never have invented a better reusable rocket without being mean to Bernie Sanders online. Or that, like, Elon Musk would only be a good leader for Tesla if he continued to be a jerk to Elizabeth Warren uh, and Ron Wyden. You know, being mean to senators is not a core component of being a successful inventor. At the same time, like, it's not lost on me that um, Elon is often compared with Thomas Edison um, in a way that can almost verge on cliche. But I wrote a review of a new Edison biography two years ago, and Edison was sort of astonishingly similar. Uh, like Musk, he was a showboat. Like Musk, he was sort of beloved by the press, but also famously brusque. Like 
Elon, there were a lot of stories about his sort of uh, sort of casual indifference to people around him. Um, he often achieved fame by building on the breakthroughs of others, but also like kind of like Musk in the final picture, Edison was astonishing. I mean, people know about the incandescent light bulb, but like, do people know, do people actually know that Thomas Edison invented recorded music? Like that he was maybe the first human being in our species to hear recorded music when he accidentally invented the phonograph. Like he built the world's first movie studio. Um, he invented the research lab. He's, he's just an astonishingly brilliant polymath. Um, and uh, you know, this is not a direct answer to your question. Cause again, I don't think you have to be a dick to be successful, but it, it is just notable, I guess, to me that Thomas Edison um, had an uh, Elonish uh, sort of personality. No, you're you're changing my mind a little bit because my my thought had been like this is totally like evidence of how the internet is like swallowing people's brains. Where like Elon Musk, a guy who whose you know Wikipedia page would already be very impressive, like feels the need to just like spend all day on Twitter, just like cultivating a, <laughs> a persona and a brand, and like it's not enough for him to have done Tesla and SpaceX and Neuralink and whatever else. Like he also has to be like. A, a shit poster and it's and it wants to be a successful one um but maybe that's just maybe that's the inventor's way like maybe edison would have been popping off if twitter had inv- had you know been around then um you know maybe he would be releasing you know maybe he would be taking uh his company's private at 420 a share or whatever <laughs> <laughs> like maybe that's just maybe that's just the the personality type of a guy who um you know invents stuff like that i don't know i i want to ask you about space um I can't tell you how divisive the issue of space is among my friends. I have close friends who think that space is just the coolest thing in the world. And I have friends who think space is the most horrific anti-humanitarian distraction from the problems of planet Earth. Do you have a strong opinion about, about space and the significance of Elon's investments there? Not a strong one. I, I would say that my strong opinion, like, weekly held... Um, is that there, we have a lot of problems here on Earth that we should be fixing. Um, I get sort of confused when people talk about becoming a multiplanetary species and setting up, you know, habitable cities on Mars and like, like Earth isn't even that pleasant to live on sometimes. And like this, you know, we co-evolved with this ecosystem. Um, so it is literally made for us in in some ways. And um you know, Mars is a lot more hostile to life. Like, I just can't imagine, you know, everything would need to be in a bubble or we need to be wearing some kind of special suit all the time to, like, be able to breathe the air. Like, it just isn't... um, I, I don't get, like, a utopian vision of something happening on Mars. I can see it as, like, a kind of last-ditch save-the-species thing mm-hmm. if the if the asteroid, you know, does head toward us. Um, we might want to keep a little, like, Noah's Ark on, uh, on Mars to repopulate somehow, but I just don't get the idea that we'll all have, like, vacation homes on Mars, you know, 20 years from now. We're definitely not going to have vacation homes on Mars. I mean, it's it's worse than Antarctica. I, I have some time for the humanity life insurance theory of Mars, that uh, civilization's, you know, too important to not have some backup. But that isn't really what motivates me. I, I, I think the, the best argument for space that I've heard is that most people think about space as a lifeless void where we send things, but we should instead think of it as a place from which we get things. And that is all about space manufacturing and Starlink, so internet satellites. Um, Space manufacturing, I think, could be kind of interesting. I think if you could take heavy industry off of Earth, that would be good for emissions. There's a lot of things like fiber optic cables and some human tissues that are really difficult to manufacture in high-gravity environments, and so you want to manufacture them in the microgravity environments of of, uh, low-orbit space and then sort of send them down in space elevators. This is very futuristic, but that's this is a it's a it's a message that doesn't take you all the way to Mars. It just takes you you know a couple hundred, couple thousand uh, miles outside of Earth. And then I also think that that Starlink, you know, uh, this is this is Elon's uh, project that is creating a a bunch of satellites that orbit Earth and provide cheap and fast internet. Um, cheap fast internet is good, and to the extent that we can do that with with satellites, I think that's that's a nice idea. So I, I guess I I am pro space. 
up to like sort of low orbit. And then by the time we get to the moon, by the time you get to Mars, I, I, I myself also get a little bit fuzzier on what exactly it is that we're doing there and why it deserves uh, uh, equal priority to things like, you know, fixing climate change. Would you go to space? Um, Elon offers you a seat on the next uh, space, SpaceX uh, rocket. Would you take it? I mean, would you not go to space? I would definitely go to space. Oh, for sure. I mean, you're, you're, it's basically, you're basically doing like a 90-second roller coaster ride that gives you like the best view of your life. I'm a huge fan of vistas. Like all my favorite vacations are vacations that have vistas, like Grand Canyon, Patagonia, uh, you know, mountain ranges in, in, in Europe. Those are all my favorite vacations. What's a vista that's better than the whole damn planet? Like I would feel, you know, guilty about the fact that this was a, you know, whatever $65 million ticket that I definitely don't deserve. But uh, if I could somehow in some zero emissions way teleport to that vista, oh, damn straight I'd do it. Would you not? You're not interested in space? I don't think I would. Interesting, why not? Uh, Fear of death, mostly. (laughs) (laughs) I think if you could guarantee my safe return, then maybe. Um, But, uh, you know, it doesn't sound all that comfortable um, to be an astronaut. Like, you know, the zero gravity thing seems like it would be cool for about 10 minutes and then you'd be like trying to pee and, you know, it would be a disaster and all of your, you know, daily activities would be made so much harder and then you got to eat the dehydrated food and it just doesn't... Although I did see that someone just got a like an Uber Eats delivery in, uh, in space. Um, so maybe there's some hope for that. So we're talking about the most influential person of 2021. And it made me think... Who are the most influential people of the 21st century? So I made a list and I couldn't get it down to a top four Mount Rushmore situation, but I did get it down to a top eight sort of double Rushmore situation. And this is the list in no particular order. Osama, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Donald Trump, Xi Jinping, Narendra Modi, Kathleen Karako, Elon Musk. Let me do a brief defense for each of them and then bring you in to criticize me deeply. Osama, uh, I think it's hard to measure exactly how significant 9-11 is for today's world, but between the attack, the multi-trillion dollar wars on terror that they inspired, clearly a history-reorienting moment. Bill Gates, not a great few years for his reputation, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, the divorce, but if we're talking influence here, I, I don't think there's any debate. He founded the second most viable company in the world, And his charity, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, has, among other things, immunized half a billion kids. The WHO did a study finding that this effort alone averted more than 6 million deaths. Save 6 million lives, second most viable company in the world. That is influence. Steve Jobs. This is easy. Apple is the most valuable company in the world, and the iPhone is probably the most important technological innovation of the century. Donald Trump. Again, this is influence, not awesomeness, but the effect he's had on the GOP, Republican politics, undeniable. Xi Jinping, head of the Chinese Communist Party. I think being the semi-autocratic leader of a country with 1.5 billion people is the definition of influential. Modi, the prime minister of India, second largest country, is probably a little less powerful than Xi, but I, he, he might give Trump a run for his money in terms of just sheer influence. Kartlin Karako, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She is uh, the queen of mRNA science, probably the most important person in the history of the development of mRNA technology, uh, a technology that has saved the lives of tens of millions of people around the world. And then you have Elon Musk, who is a late entrant, uh, probably not the same level as the rest of these, but uh, in terms of staying power, in terms of impact in the future, Kevin, if in 2040, you and I are podcasting via Neuralink from self-driving electric vehicles powered by internet distributed by space satellite. It's going to be pretty hard to argue against the Elon case. So quick honorable mentions just missed the list. You have Angela Merkel, longtime German leader, Ben Bernanke, extremely influential leader of the Federal Reserve during the Great Recession, Barack Obama, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, and Jennifer Doudna, the co-inventor of the gene editing technology CRISPR. Oh, Kevin, what stands out to you? What are the big omissions? And do you see some separation toward the top? 
I, I think your list is pretty good. I will say, I think that like you are in, you are crazy to include someone like Ben Bernanke on there. <laughs> that is your econ blogger uh, past talking. Uh, name me one president of, or head of the Federal Reserve from the early 20th century, and I will grant that that you have a point. But I don't think we we tend to idolize um, you know people who run the Fed. Um, I could be wrong, could be wrong, but um, that would be my instinctive uh, person to take off that list. I would also put some more people on that list. Um, I would put, for example, uh, Jeff Hinton, um, one of the pioneers of uh, deep learning and AI, and hmm. built the first neural network. Um, I, I think there's a case to be made that like AI is going to end up transforming a lot of things, um, and that we will look to the people who sort of pioneered the modern AI movement as kind of progenitors of all that. Um, I think you could make an argument that you know, Jeff Bezos belongs on that list. Um, I think you could make an argument that someone like Travis Kalanick belongs on that list, not because he, you know, um, not because Uber necessarily is going to take over the world, but because the gig model of work that Uber popularized has become so dominant. And if that ends up being a trend um, that lasts, you know, well into this century, he could be seen as sort of a person who, uh, who you know, who sort of came up with that or at least popularized it. And then I would also say that some of the people we tend to remember decades or centuries after the fact are activists. Uh, we remember, you know, Susan Anthony and Rosa Parks and, you know, Martin Luther King and Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan. Like, we remember people who, who are... Um, you know, sort of in the in, in positions of authority in transformative social movements. So by that token, like maybe someone like you know Alicia Garza, you know from Black Lives Matter qualifies. Maybe someone like Tarana Burke from Me Too. Like these movements mm. that you know have changed the way people relate to gender and race in this country. Um, maybe they end up being sort of on, on the Mount Rushmore. 50 or, or 100 years from now. Yeah, you could add Greta to that list, maybe Greta Thunberg. You could add maybe Malala. Yeah, I think the activism angle is a really, really good one. And you're totally right. When people look back 100 years, yes, yeah, sometimes they remember the tech, they remember the science, but they also always have a slot for the activists that change not only the physical world, but the morality of the future, our sense of right and wrong. I think that's a totally. really, really great one. And it, and it's hard, I will say, like, it's hard to do this with tech people because so much of it depends on whether the technology takes off. Like, mm. we remember the Wright brothers because the airplane is popular and we still use them. But, you know, we don't remember who invented the hot air balloon, or at least I don't, um, because right. that was a technology that, you know, had its day and then, you know, now is is not in widespread use. Um, so it could be that like, you know, 100 years from now, you know, everything is in crypto and Satoshi Nakamoto is the most, you know, famous person from this century. It could be, you know, that the people who are uh, doing quantum computing will end up becoming monumentally important. We just don't know yet because we because we don't know which of these technologies is going to end up mattering the most. I love that idea. I, I I briefly wondered, I was like, who was the inventor of Zeppelin airships? You will be maybe unsurprised to learn that his name was Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> that, was invented, that was invented in 1900, which means it was basically like months before the Wright brothers took off uh, in, in North Carolina. And it's interesting to think, like in 1905, if you and I were doing the podcast equivalent of coming up with the most influential people in 1905, we'd probably put Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin over the Wright brothers, because I'm pretty sure that rigid airships uh, had a, a bit more popularity and, and optimism around them than, um, than airplanes. I actually know for a fact that airplanes uh, were not expected to be particularly popular, uh, at least for, for common use uh, in, in the first few decades of their existence. Um, that's fun. Do you have, do you have a, a Mount Rushmore that you want to share? If I'm, if I'm Jobs, Gates, Catlin Carrico, and G, um, are there any edits that you would make to your Mount Rushmore of the first 21 years of the 21st century? Uh, as much as it pains me to say it, I think Trump's got to be on there. I mean, I do think that Trump is probably the most famous person who has ever existed, just in terms of sheer name recognition around the globe. Um, and I think that, you know, the the movement that he 
started in the U.S. I mean, we don't know what the ultimate ramifications of it will be, but just I think that, you know, no chapter on the 2010s in any future history book will not have a big section about Trump and Trumpism in the U.S. in it. And uh, and so I think, you know, I, I think that he's got to be on there, to be honest. I Trump was was my number five. Uh, he was he was the la- last cut for the Mount Rushmore, and that might have been a cut made uh, out of aspiration rather than out of a <laughs> uh, a, 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 a truthful uh, relationship to evidence. I think you're I think you're right um, uh, to 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 have him on on the mountain or very close. Like the United States is the most powerful country in the world. It's a two party system, and one of those two parties is controlled basically as a marionette by one man. Uh, and that man is Donald Trump. I think he he has to be toward the top. Um, all right, shifting gears a little bit. Uh, Kevin, the last time you and I talked, um, we went over uh, two of the more confusing ideas in tech, uh, metaverse and crypto. Uh, and you recently wrote a really interesting article about why it seems like so many of the founders of the last generation of tech seem so restless now about the state of technology and they're looking for something new. I want to quote directly from this article that you wrote in, in The Times. Um, you're talking about the, the resignation of Twitter founder and former CEO uh, uh, Dorsey. Um, and you say, quote, there's something else going on with Mr. Dorsey and some of his fellow tech moguls. They seem to be getting bored and restless with their jobs, and they're striking out in search of adventure. Jeff Bezos's wanderlust led him to step down from Amazon this year and fulfill his childhood fantasy of going to space. Google's founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, stepped down in 2019 and have since been investing in futuristic projects like airships, go uh, Von Zeppelin, and flying taxis. Mark Zuckerberg is still running Facebook, but it's called Meta now, and the company's big metaverse pivot seems to be designed in part to infuse some novelty and excitement back into a staid big company culture. Say a little bit more about what you think is going on about our tech royalty and why they seem so fidgety to move on to something new, even as the problems of their creations haven't quite been fixed. Right. I mean, this is one of the more sort of fascinating shifts in the tech industry this year. Um, It really has felt like everyone who was sort of instrumental in pioneering the last sort of generation of big internet companies just kind of got bored. And, you know, the skills that you, you know, that serve you well as a, you know, plucky young entrepreneur or a college student, you know, programming in your dorm at Harvard, like those same skills aren't necessarily the skills that you need to run a huge, you know, global enterprise. Um, it's not all that fun. You've got regulators yelling at you, you know, politicians <laughs> call you into, you know, testify before Congress. You're just in like a series of, you know, meetings all day and and you're, you know, sort of making incremental progress toward fixing these like massive societal problems that you're now, you know, being blamed for like the downfall of society and democracy. So I I don't think it's totally unexpected that they would sort of get itchy um, after, you know, in some cases, decades of running these companies. Um, They also, you know, they don't need the money, obviously. And so it's not about that for them. I think it's about sort of keeping themselves interested and engaged. And and so for a lot of them, that's been... uh, playing out in in these ways that I mentioned, you know, space travel or um, airships or uh, or crypto. and and crypto in particular, I think, and and the metaverse are are interesting next pivots for um for these technology leaders because in some sense, they are um, escaping the bounds and the confines and the limitations of the physical world of meat space as as some of them call it. Um, you know, things in meat space are messy. They take time. They involve, you know, regulators and laws and, um, and you know, real-world consequences. Um, the rules are not written by people in Silicon Valley, at least not technically. They're written by, you know, people in government. And so you are essentially playing on someone else's turf if you're a technologist trying to create a global, global-scale platform. But with the metaverse and with crypto, like, 
they can own the turf. It can be a world of their own creation where they write all the rules, where they control the boundaries of what people you know, can and can't do in a way that they, they almost can with their existing companies, but can't quite. So I think, I think this pivot toward crypto and the metaverse, I think a lot of it stems from sort of a, a desire to kind of wipe the slate clean and try again, this time, you know, having learned the lessons of some of their past mistakes um, and hopefully doing a little bit better next time. That's the sort of optimistic, you know, sort of generous spin on it. The, the more cynical spin is like, yeah, they made a big mess. They don't feel like cleaning it up and they're going to go play in a new playground that they're going to build from scratch while the janitors clean up the mess on the old one. Um, and that's something that a lot of people feel is going on too. I think you're right. I frankly think that both those things are going on. To me, you know, I, reading your piece and putting it next to an essay that the tech writer Ben Thompson, No Relationship, published last week, um, gave me this new conception of how we're looking at a, a situation where futurism, people's vision of the future seems to be forking into three different paths. Path number one is save the planet. You have people that are saying the future of technology and science needs to, about be, needs to be about saving us right now in meat space, in the physical world, vaccines into our bodies, solar and wind energy all over the world, carbon capture plants, save this planet. There's another second uh, vision of futurism that is about going to another planet. And this is a little bit less popular, but there's definitely a, a, a lane here of people saying the future of technology needs to be entirely oriented around building this interstellar civilization, right? This is not my vision of the future, but it's definitely a vision. And then number three, you have this third vision of futurism that says it's not about saving the planet, in the physical world. It's not about going to another planet. It's about building a digital planet, building a new layer of digital experience. And that's what the metaverse is. It's a new layer of virtual reality that we can experience through software and we'll live in a better world in this metaverse online space. And you have crypto sort of connecting to that too. And crypto is hard to sort of describe in a single definition, but to me, it's it's a suite of technologies that take an internet that is mostly centralized, where a lot of us are kind of like tenants, you know? We don't uh, own something on Facebook, we are tenants of Facebook. We don't own something on Spotify, we're tenants of Spotify. And crypto says we wanna move from an internet in which users are tenants of uh, institutions of centralized control to an internet where users share ownership of these scarce digital assets like NFTs and create their own uh, distributed decentralized communities, right? And crypto and the metaverse can sort of fit together because some people say we can build this virtual layer of the internet that is powered by crypto. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm completely going fucking insane when I use these words in, in elongated <laughs> sentences, but that's, that's basically the vibe. You're not alone. Um, and I, I wanted to, to ask you about that third path because it, it is the path that I think people seem most excited about right now. Like, what is the appeal do you think, of building this new digital planet? I think part of it is that it's still the Wild West. Um, you can do pretty much anything you want in the metaverse or in crypto right now. Um, there are some regulators starting to poke their heads in and say, hey, what's going on in here? Um, maybe we should put some guardrails up. But um, but really, it's, it's you know, as open a terrain as you're going to find in the tech industry. I also think there's something uniquely appealing about uh, crypto in in this phase of its adoption. I mean, if you think about the sort of early phase of social media, like if you were user number a hundred of Twitter, like it was kind of cool. You know, you got like a cool username. You know, maybe you got just your first name. Um, there was a little status associated with that. With that, you talked to your friends. Like it was cool to be user number a hundred of Twitter. If you're user number 100 of Bitcoin, you get a billion dollars. <laughs> like, like, it's just a very different incentive structure that points to being really early. Like, that is the that is the thing that you want to do if you are invested in crypto. Is like, 
you want to get in early. You want to promote the living hell out of it so that other people get in and make your your bags more valuable. Like there's a kind of evangelism and early adoption like built into the nature of the the technology. And so I think that is sort of different and appealing to people who are interested in making a lot of money or amassing a lot of power very quickly. Like it is a place where you can kind of do that. Um, and I also think there's a kind of... I've been trying to sort of play out kind of the psychology of of crypto in the metaverse and like why these particular people, Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, like why they feel drawn to it. And I think some of it is about like a midlife crisis of sorts. Like I think it's like these are people who, you know, did, you know, transformative, uh, you know, exciting things in their 20s and, and 30s, um, you know, who are now kind of, reaching middle age and they see the young kids who are all into NFTs and crypto and the metaverse and they don't think of themselves as being old. They want like a kind of a a chance to play in that space. Um, And so this is their way of kind of, uh, you know, it's like the equivalent of like, you know, refreshing your wardrobe and dyeing your hair and like, you know, uh, buying a skateboard or something. I don't know. It's like, this is how you, if you are a middle-aged tech executive, um, this is how part of how you can make yourself feel excited about tech again. Yeah. I think, I, I think that's all, that's all really well put. And, you know, when I think about these three paths of futurism, save the planet, go to another planet, build a digital planet. It occurs to me that like the first two are really, really, really hard. You know, like fixing Facebook, fixing Facebook is hard. Like it, it, it requires like fixing human nature in, in, in many respects. Uh, building roads and bridges, building sufficient housing in this country and others, that's really, really hard. Colonizing Mars, uh, that is really, that's going to be really, really, really hard. What's still hard, still very hard, but not as hard, is building a new kind of crypto product that creates an extraordinary amount of wealth in a matter of months. Like there are billionaires being minted on a months long basis, which is like faster than like it takes to get approval to build the typical bridge in America. And that also seems to me to be why you have this focus moving toward building the next digital planet rather than spending time in the meat space in the physical world of this one. That that's just where the river of ease and fast money somewhat flows to. Absolutely. I, I, I think that's like a really important and profound point. Like this is the fastest accumulation of wealth in the history of the world. Like maybe the thing that is most comparable to it is like the discovery of oil in the Middle East. Like it's, it's crypto is generating, I mean, we, we're seeing it you know, emerge. Like, people are naming stadiums after crypto companies. They're buying sports teams. They're, you know, raising $40 million to buy a copy of the Constitution. Like, the amount of money that has been generated over the past, really, four or five years um, in this space is just unbelievable. And, you know, if you're if you're early and you're lucky, like you don't even particularly have to work that hard at it. It's not like building a company and, you know, from the ground up. Like, you just click a few buttons and, you know, put some coins in your wallet and take some risk. And if it works out, you, uh, you, you are rich. Yeah. I, I do think it's important to point out, I know a lot of people in this space around this space. I think it's, it can simultaneously be true that some people are getting rich very, very quickly without, uh, the same kind of demonstrated effort that it took to get similarly rich before. And there are also a lot of people that are working extremely hard totally. on things and it's a really, really hard slog. It's the slow boring of hard boards and they're working hard on stuff that could be really interesting and important, and they're not getting super rich very quickly. Right. There are people who are in it for all kinds of reasons. Totally, totally. But I think, you know, with any gold rush, with any sort of, you know, uh, explosion of new wealth and possibility and and opportunity, like, you're going to have people who are there to to speculate, you're going to have people who who are there to build settlements. You're going to have people who are there, um, you know, for the social experience of being there. Um, I, I don't think crypto is a monolith, and I, I wouldn't want it to come off like saying everyone's there to get rich. But I also think that, you know, it is 
it is a blank slate in many ways. And I think if you're someone who has gotten frustrated with all of the you know, hassles of working through, you know, bureaucratic red tape and, you know, regulations and, and it's just not that fun anymore for you. Like it, it feels appealing to go to a blank canvas. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write, use Canva docs. It has magic, write A built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points, for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Kevin, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is working from home uh, and remote work. Uh, About two years ago, I guess, what is it now? 20 months ago, you wrote, I think the very first article that I read about the research around remote work in March, 2020, and what our experience working remotely would feel like. Um, And I just had an interview with Anne Helen Peterson, the co-author of a new book on remote work out of office. And there's something that I didn't say in that interview that I felt bad about. And I want to bring it up now and and get your feedback on it, Um, which is that, you know, it's not obvious to me that remote work is good for teams. I can see how it's good for a lot of individuals, and I can see how it's good for a lot of clearly designated groups. But I think it's not clear to me that it's good for working across teams. And there's one piece of research I think is really important for for advancing this point. Um, Microsoft, in the first six months of its pandemic, did a research project with the University of California, Berkeley, looked at 60,000 workers, looked at how they talked to each other before and after the pandemic struck, and they basically came up with two conclusions. Conclusion number one is that communications within teams went way up. Conclusion number two, communications outside of teams went way down. So like the water cooler hobnobbing effect was basically zeroed out by the pandemic. And I thought the reaction to the study was totally fascinating because some people looked at the study and said, look, teams stopped talking to each other. You have no more water cooler magic. This is your critical source of creativity and it's drying up. And then you had other people saying, water cooler magic doesn't exist. Like you can have way better, way cleaner, way more interesting cross-group communications online by finding communities on Twitter or wherever else than you can in a typical office where people are just bugging you about the latest NFL game or the latest Taylor Swift album. Keeping sort of the findings of that research paper in mind, I wanted to know where you were starting to come down on the relationship between remote work and creativity. 
It's an interesting question, and I, I haven't kept up with the research uh, as closely as it, it sounds like you and, and certainly um, Anne Helen Peterson have been. My, I can just speak individually from what it's been like from my perspective. So I, I am, you know, I'm a writer, I'm a columnist, I work, you know, mostly on my own and have for some time. And I've also worked, I worked remotely some years before the pandemic, I've worked remotely since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think my own experience of it has been that, you know, I am, uh, I am sort of productive at home. I can be productive. I can be um, happy. Um, but I work all the time. There's no separation. I've, I've you know, I, I, I work, you know, <laughs> much more than I probably should, and 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 certainly than I did before uh, the pandemic when I was going into an office. Much, you know, blurrier separation between work and leisure. Um, and I also think that it's sort of changed my writing style. I think that, um, you know, I when I am going out into the world, when I'm going on reporting trips, when I'm you know, meeting people in the flesh, I, I tend to be more repertorial in my approach. Like I, I think of my job as basically like mostly writing down what other people say and, you know, my experience of being in a place and adding like a thin layer of analysis or commentary on top of it to like now where I just like sit in my office in my house and like just crank out takes. <laughs> like that's, that's not a change that I'm particularly proud of. And it's something that I'm like, I, I really felt the first time I got back on a plane and like did a reporting trip, I was like, oh, this is a much, I, I enjoy this job much more, um, the job of like going out into the world and, and being sort of eyes and ears for for readers. Um, so I think that's that's been my experience. I feel more creative when I am uh, when I'm in an office colliding with people. Um, I tend to work, you know, uh, more in a more sort of focused and narrow way when I'm by myself. Um, but I do think there's I, I I think the research is pretty clear that there in these environments where there are sort of creative collisions or whatever you want to call them. Like, and the company is a place, the organization actually values that and that there's like an out, that's actually a productive thing to have. I think that, you know, in that sense, like I do miss that. So I think I will um, start going back to an office at least a few days a week when that's an option um, and it's safe to do so. My feeling on this issue has changed so many times over the last uh, 20 months or so. I honestly, I have no fucking idea where creativity comes from. Like, I've just like declared bankruptcy on the idea. I'm actually, I'm not sure anyone does. I like, a part of me feels like all the research, all the hundreds and thousands of papers that have been written about the secret sauce of creativity, that, that A, A, there's so much diversity within them that they can't all be right. And B, I wonder if they're all just a little bit wrong. And whether it's like so unbelievably individual and so serendipitous, like where great ideas come from, that it, it can't be designed for. I think that there are some ideas that I have that could only come from just reading Twitter a lot. And that sounds ridiculous, but it's just true. There are just some articles that I've written, some of the best articles that I've written, most popular articles I've written that I'm most proud of just came from goofing off on Twitter for two hours longer than I should have and coming across an idea that sparked a con little piece of connective tissue that brought together all these ideas and created an article. At the same time, I, I am terrible at telecommunications. I'm so bad at like maintaining focus during many Zoom calls, although you have been electrifying. Uh, on phone <laughs> calls, I can't, I, like, I, I look around whatever room that I'm in and get distracted by like the, the stitching in a pillow when someone's talking in my ear. Um, I need like the physical corporeal presence of people to stay attentively connected to them. And that makes me think, wait, no, the, the Twitter thing doesn't work. I, I have to be around people. I need those, those, um, those physical world collisions. Um, my, my, I, I, my I truly think macro, it's just so individual. Yeah. I mean, a, a thesis that I've been sort of, a hypothesis that I've been playing around with that you, I want to bounce off of you is that I think that um, remote work is great for mid-career individual contributors. People who are basically happy with their jobs and would be content to do them uninterrupted for the rest of their careers. Um, people like, you know, you and me, frankly, um, that we, you know, are some of the people who benefit most from re remote work arrangements. I actually see the other ends of that spectrum, the early career, 
sort of young, ambitious people and the late career sort of managers and executive ranks as being much hungrier to get back into an office. Um, and that's something that I would have predicted from the the executives, but not so much from the young people. That's been really surprising is that a lot of the people I know who are like in their 20s are like the ones who are most psyched about going back to an office and most bummed out that they can't be in an office because like how you move up um, in a lot of industries is by sort of mastering the subtleties of the workplace it is by you know, figuring out where the power is, who has veto power, who, you know, who has what personality type, um, how to sort of fit into an organization, what an organization needs. Like, it's much more difficult to do that kind of subtle organizational mapping um, over Slack. It just doesn't work as well. And so I think if you are a person who's young and ambitious, like you are, you know, you want to be in an office. What do you think about that? I, I love the idea of a remote barbell effect, essentially, that, you know, if the, if the x-axis is, is, is sort of age and, and uh, status within the company, that it's not very valuable remote work for people who just entered the company because they don't have a sense of culture. It's not as valuable for people who are older and more likely to be managers because they might get more out of seeing people and, and interacting directly with people. But for those in the middle, in their mid-30s, say, you know, guys who are 35 years old uh, talking to each other on a Zoom podcast right now. I'm only 34, sh- thanks. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that it might be really useful that there, that there are certain aspects of it. And I want to be careful not to sort of, you know, globalize my own individual uh, appreciation for certain aspects of remote work. Also want to call out Anne Helen Peterson's point, which I know you agree with, and I think it's a really good one. It's very clear that a lot of office cultures were built around a certain uh, a certain white, a certain sort of, you know, pro-male culture um, that is, that we're better off not uh, recapitulating um, as we think about, you know, bringing people back to the office. Totally. Um, I, I think the last point on remote work is just that, why I'm I'm I am sometimes a little bit less optimistic about the next few years of the remote work experience is that I think it's just really, really hard to build a great remote culture. I think it takes a lot of purposeful investment and a lot of really purposeful team architecturing. And a lot of these companies that were thrust into remote work um, have just been getting by through the pandemic. Um, and if, God willing, the pandemic ever ends, purposely designing a hybrid work experience that works for everyone is is going to be really, really difficult. Yeah, I, I see the point that I think there's a lot of merit there. I've also been sort of toying around with this whole like anti-work argument. Have you been, do you ever go on the anti-work subreddit? I have, but uh, un- unpack that for our listeners. So th- there's this whole movement that I, I think is very interesting, um, and it's especially sort of taking off among kind of Gen Z workers that basically says that like this idea of having like a corporate culture of like the company as like a family, you know, like we're we're not a company, we're a community, like that kind of language and rhetoric is basically just a scam to like extract more labor from people than they're being paid for. Um, and that essentially like you should do as little work as possible because it's a bloodless exchange of, of, you know, capital for, for labor. Um, and that you should, you know, you should embrace all of the things that allow you to be distant from your job that, you know, clocking in and clocking out is not a bad way to live your life. And in fact, anything other than that is kind of a sham, perpetrated by companies that want to make people uh, work harder and extract more of their labor in return for uh, the money that they're paying them. Are you asking me how I feel about this thesis? Yes. Um, My extremely unsatisfying answer is sometimes. Uh, Yeah, I totally get that for some people, some of the time at some companies, uh, the family dynamic and sort of uh, pretended appreciation of the role of work in their life um, is, is absolutely a sham. Um, and it is designed to extract more value and more work out of individual workers. Um, and workers should be extremely cautious about falling prey to a manufactured sense of corporate family. At the same time, when I hear arguments about things like anti-work, um, represented by journalists who seem to legitimately love their jobs, it makes me recognize that there's this huge spectrum of working experience. Like some people just fucking love their jobs. And I don't think that's a psyop. I don't think that those people are like broken deep down. I I am so lucky 
that I am paid to just pay attention to the world and come up with questions about it and then call people and answer the questions. Like, that's an awesome thing that I would do or would, would like to do whether or not I'm being salaried for it. So I reject the idea that just because I'm salaried for it means that my devotion to answering interesting questions about the world is some kind of evidence of brokenness. No, just it's just what, Exactly it's just what fun. the victim of a psyop it's would just, say, Derek. Yeah. I mean, you, are, you are in the cult. No, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, given the choice between working at a place that has a bad culture and a good culture, like I'd probably take the good culture. Um, I enjoy my workplace's culture uh, for the most part. And I think that like I enjoy my job as a result because people pay attention to things like culture. Um, I don't believe in this like very cynical sort of uh, view that anything short of just a complete transactional relationship with an employer is like a sort of, you know, uh, bowing to the power of, you know, of, of, of capital. Um, but I also think that I, I understand why people are rebelling against this idea that your job should be the source of all meaning in your life. I think you, you know, you wrote this kind of definitive uh, essay on this about about workism, this sort of attitude that like your your meaning and your your value and your identity are all derived from the the place that you get a paycheck from. And I, I think that's been um, that's that's not been the experience of a lot of people. And so I think that's in in part I see anti work as sort of a reaction to that. Yeah, I, th that that's where I think I, I, I start to agree is that um, I think that it's important that we give people options about where they derive meaning and where they find love. And I think that there's something about the demise of community in America that has left a lot of people assuming that the last community standing is the office. The last community standing is work. And that is a broken ideology. The idea that you don't have a choice, the idea that you have to love your job, the idea that starting off at 1822, your career is like the spine of your life, that is a broken fucking philosophy. But if people do happen to find themselves in work that is fulfilling, that they think about, that is socially beneficial, that allows them to live well-rounded lives, that they go to sleep happy and wake up happy and can provide for their families and be intellectually stimulated throughout the day. I can't, I can't, I, I, I don't want to pretend that I'm identifying something wrong in that picture. Cause I'm, cause I'm not. I think that some people just get lucky, but at a sort of national policy level, we should find ways to pass laws that make it so people don't have to reorient their lives around maximizing working hours. That's for sure. You know, an anti-work hardliner would probably be very mad that I'm coming on this podcast for free today. I mean, this is really, I am the victim of, of the Derek Thompson psyop in which my labor is being extracted for no pay. And frankly, I'm, I'm considering going on strike. Well, look, I'm going to extract only a small amount of labor from you for the next five minutes. I, I would like to um, end by asking you to make one tech prediction for 2022. Um, what is Kevin Roos's big thing to look out for uh, next year in the technology space? Um, I think it's going to be the the year that crypto asserts itself in politics. I think we will see candidates backed by crypto organizations. I think someone with a bored ape avatar or a crypto punk avatar is going to run for Congress and probably win. I think we are going to see sort of financial flash mobs of campaign contributions and lobbying dollars spontaneously forming around crypto. I think it's going to be the the year that Washington actually has to figure out what the hell this stuff is. Uh, I believe in the 1950s, it might have been for Dwight Eisenhower, we had what was called the television election. Uh, it was the the Snapchat primary or the Snapchat election in, in 2015, 2016. Uh, you're predicting the crypto election or the crypto primary in 2022. I think that's incredibly plausible. You know, one of the things that I've said that's gotten me in trouble about the crypto movement is that people keep looking for this killer app. Like, what is the first killer app of crypto? And I joked at one point, I said, the first killer app of crypto is that it's minted a shit ton of bajillionaires. Like, that's not a function of technology, but it's a function of the technology making a lot of people rich. And it's something that eventually you just can't ignore. You have and so many with, billionaires. People with, some of them with very strange views. 
Strange um, and closely held views, strange views that they want to find politicians to back. I think you are totally right on the money about this. Like, in a, in a weird way, I, what did I say about the, the three futurisms? Sort of physical world futurism, uh, extraterrestrial futurism, uh, and digital futurism. Maybe what you're saying is 2022 is where paths one and two converge, where the crypto people start to find ways to influence the future of the physical world, the future of planet Earth. Um, that is a beautiful, uh, potentially dystopian, um, potentially just bizarre and strange uh, place to stop. So Kevin, thank you so, so much for coming back. And um, we will hear from you very soon again. You'll hear from my negotiating committee. Um, <laughs> I, am, I am not coming back on this podcast without a fair contract. <laughs> my union will talk to your union. Uh, <laughs> All right, good to see you. Thank you, Kevin. Good to see you. Plain English with Derek Thompson is produced by Devin Manzi. If you like what you hear, please follow, rate, and review us. New episode drops on Tuesday. Have a great weekend.